Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, working artists earn $6,000 less than workers with similar education. More than 35% are self-employed, yet less than one-third have achieved full sustainability, meaning they fully support themselves with their art. The difference between just making art and creating a sustainable art career that strengthens an economy for a lifetime is proper business training and tools. You can have an exponential impact with just a small donation. So give small at clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. That's clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. We'd certainly appreciate your small gift. Now, our guest today is Neil Ramsey. Neil is the founder and director of Arts Up, a nonprofit that doubles as an event space where artists take over the upper half of the 5,000 square foot venue with massive installations. He's also an artist advocate and professor of visual arts marketing at Florida International University with a background in economics and finance. Neil, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do for a living? Well, thanks, Daniel. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, my three-legged stool is economics, education, and art. Uh, so I am an instructor at Florida International University in the College of Architecture and Art, which recently I also added the uh, College of Communications to that. And uh, the course that I created and designed for them was the visual arts marketing. And I teach that, and I'll be teaching that again in the spring. I also am the founder, as you said, of Arts Up, which is an experimental gallery in downtown Fort Lauderdale in the arts district uh, called uh, Flagler Arts and Technology, which is Fat Village. And that's where I have the art space in downtown, which is, as I said, the experimental commercial warehouse art gallery. And I'm also a co-partner in a social design consultancy by the name of Kennington Gray. And that's where I practice my creative economics. And that is linked also to a fund for new ventures. So, Neil, uh, shed a little more light on ArtsUp. Why exactly did you found it in the first place? Well, ArtsUp is, I founded it really as a platform. So, ArtsUp is a platform. It's an environment for artists and creators to experiment uh, with their particular crafts. It is an art-centric organization, or artist-centric, I should say, organization. And it also jewels as a private event space. And the reason that I, as I said, I founded it is particularly to give or create an experimental environment for artists. And then on the other hand of that, it was really, it really came out of a sort of a process, which was uh, an idea that I had when I first saw the facility. The facility is an expensive 5,800 square foot facility with ceilings near enough 25 feet. And there are no beams or anything as, as trusses, but nothing that interrupts the space. And uh, when I first visited there, I looked up and the ceilings are absolutely magnificent. Uh, it's a 65-year-old warehouse with these beautiful wooden beams that have lasted all this time in East Fort Lauderdale. So... You know, there's been a few hurricanes and storms, but they're still there. And that was when I had the idea of just what can we do to make people look up and enjoy that particular space. And then over six months, the idea of implementing a gallery that is literally available 12 feet above the ground where you're standing up to the ceiling is how I developed that. And 
the problem solving or the issue that I was solving was that there is already a business model of events and private events. It's actually an event uh, facility. So I did not infringe on that with the gallery as opposed to have the gallery completely complement that and have the space have this duality where there are two completely different disciplines, art and business, occurring in one venue and the audiences for both are appreciating each other. Well, now, uh, you focus a lot on experiential learning. Can you tell us a little more about what that is and how that fits with Arts Up? Sure. Experiential learning, in, in the sense, it's creating an environment for learning. So creating opportunities for students, and when I say students, anybody that is interested in learning or curious, as opposed to delivering a lecture or giving a series of instructions or or something of that nature. It's creating the environment for the individual that they can actually immerse themselves in and run through real-world scenarios, if you want to put it that way. And um, more like an apprenticeship. So by engaging in the experience, they are learning as they're doing. And it's creating those types of environments. It's a learn as you do. I love that. Um, You know, I have uh, a background in education. I did my master's in education, of course. Experiential learning is uh, a core of uh, our the focus that I had in graduate work, and I wasn't sure if you mean the same thing, but you do. It's sort of like when we want to teach kids about economics, and it's all very nebulous and theoretical, versus um, having them actually run a store and learn about how supply and demand and all of those things work through experience. You're actually creating a hands-on uh, learning environment in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And uh, whoever the individual artist or creative is that enters the facility and, and wants to propose or has an idea or is inspired by it, that person, it, it, it really works by them wanting their willingness to actually join in with the facilitation of their idea, whether it's an exhibit or responsive programming or even a commercial idea that has relevance in the marketplace. They can actually incubate that idea under the Arts Up umbrella. And uh, each member of Arts Up, which is very, very flexible, it's myself, the documentarian by the name of Lauren Lightbody, and whoever comes into the particular project. So each project is almost like a startup experience of its own, and everyone uses their expertise to support the other person and to make the other person look good, and it's using their talents to do that. And uh, finding this or, or building a community around the process, because it is quite ambitious. As I said, it's a 5,800 square foot space. So, you know, what we do is I consider that the opportunity, the the reason that the walls and the floor is blank is because that's full of opportunity. The art is installed in the aerial volume of the space, and the actual process and the, the production, if you will, is conducted by a team of individuals particularly with the artists and other members of the community that we sort of share and go back and we help each other in that sense with the various skills. So Lauren Lightbody is a DFA photographer, myself with an economics and finance background. But I also have the our neighbors and members of the community, such as the uh, Fat Village organization and others that we sort of rally around. And uh, you know, we share tools and, 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 and equipment to help facilitate whatever the artist's idea is for that particular space and whatever site-responsive or site-specific project they are 
looking and they want to um, uh, to realize. Well, now, I think it may not be entirely clear to our listeners what exactly uh, people are experientially learning. And I, I, I don't gather that you have a fixed uh, core curriculum that you're after, even though, you know, your focus is sort of marketing and economics and finance. But, for example, you worked with Vanessa Diaz, who was interviewed previously on this show. And I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that episode if you're sifting through our podcast episodes. And that was about her solo exhibition, which is a CHF-funded project called Possibility of an Exit. And she talked on that show about how the artist is the CEO of the project. And I'm curious, is that the skill set you're trying to instill? Or is, is the curriculum more intensive and more formalized than that? Okay, well, it's not. And uh, I'm very hesitant to even use the word curriculum because that makes it sound very, very formal in that sense. There's not a lot of complete structure and repetitive processes that are written and exercised throughout the uh, year. Uh, As I said, each project, each artist, like Vanessa Diaz, is treated individually. Artist as a CEO comes from or is empowered by the horizontal structure of the organization. So when I say that, it's not a hierarchical organization. It's not a top-down. There's orders and there are procedures that are written where everyone must follow those. There's more of a guiding principle within it. And what I do is I really try to facilitate and remove many of the bureaucratic hindrances and things of that nature that make it repetitive or processes. And generally, processes are generally put in place for operational processes and things that are repetitive or occur frequently. So you put them in place so that they go smoothly, it's documented, and everybody or anybody can pick it up and understand how that goes. So I am maintaining an environment for experimentation. So the experiential part really is the artist is plugged into a horizontal organization. So therefore, there is no hierarchy and they're not listening necessarily to my orders or anybody else. What they've done is they're sharing their vision and their dream for that particular space. And then the team is flat. So we they are absolutely in charge of their vision. And as a matter of fact, everyone is looking to them because everyone is now participating with their own strengths and with their own department, if you will to help facilitate that. And therefore, that empowers the artist because the artist is not in a subordinate role to me as the director or founder, and I'm not commissioning or curating, per se, in that sense, and saying, this is what I want. It's a matter of, they've already decided that. And the experience comes from taking that from an idea and executing. So the experiential learning is the execution of an idea and taking it from A to Z or A to Z and seeing it through that process. And of course, what one might do in theory or in a curriculum or from a textbook, you know, once you implement in the real world and you start that process and things start coming at you from left and right, and it could be anything from weather, temperature, time of season, resources, what's available, what's not available at that time. And those are the problems that they have to deal with and navigate through, and we all do. And at the end of it, there's a, they end up with an exhibition. There's an artwork that they have that's produced, and we have this really immersive solo exhibition by the artist. And that's really how we get through it. And it's a very organic, and it is a very unique experience, because I do maintain each artist has that experience. So they're not plugging into a system that's already determined. 
and really trying to keep an environment that is very open to possibilities and artist-centric, and that starts with the artist's idea. So let's let's dig into this notion a little bit more than about the artist as CEO. You know, it. I hear what you're saying that this is a, a horizontal hierarchy rather than a vertical hierarchy. Um, so the ro- roles and responsibilities are distributed horizontally. And yet, I'm curious how you support this role as sort of CEO of their own project, uh, how you support this role logistically within the Arts Up team, and whether every artist is expected to, in some sense, be the CEO of their project. No, every artist is given the opportunity to exercise that ambition and to exercise that level of say-so, so that it's not they're not being necessarily told what to do in the creative sense, and even uh, some of the logistical sense. They're involved in the actual administration and the production. So what goes on behind the scenes, they sit at those tables. That question is directed to the artist. The the question uh, marketing directed to the artist. They are absolutely privy to the financial budget requirements or the, the, the constraints or the needs and the planning of that. All that is also done with the artist accounting, it could be pay-per-click, it could be the marketing, it could be online, social media, website development, whatever they really want to do. You know, with Vanessa D, we've created a website. We have uh, lighting equipment, so there's a lot of uh, artists that they're doing their own lighting and working with lighting engineers who are supporting us, working with us from that village. In this particular installation, we have a lighting engineer from the Osh Center in Miami, the stage manager or program manager who has done the lighting and worked. And that's being called in and directed by the artists themselves. So it's really about gauging and, for me, working with the artists in a very personal way and allowing them to exercise their way of doing things and not necessarily me or the organization outlining how things are done because there's a lot of intellect and there's a lot, obviously there's a creative field. So we allow that application even in the business operation and the management aspect. And we allow the artists, they have that voice right there at levels that they may not traditionally have a, a voice or a say. They have that say all throughout it. And right now I have the, the exhibit right now is Dark Matter Sweet Earth. And that is an artist takeover. And that's by Gary Moore, and he's a established artist and been practicing for many, many, many years. And that literally is an artist takeover. He ran that production and that exhibit from A to Z, and even the dates of the exhibit. So I didn't even control the day it goes up or the day it comes down. So I want to ask uh, just a couple more questions about about this, about ArtsUp's operation, and before we move on to. Uh, in the next segment to the topic of arts advocacy. So um, one of those questions is, what kind of artists are you trying to attract? You know, what, what do they need to bring to the table to be successful uh, in an exhibit like this, where they're taking over such a large space and there is a large degree of self-direction involved in management of the project? What is it they need to have and what are you looking for? Well, I could tell you, I'll, it's very important that we understand and we do know that the level of involvement and responsibility with this in and itself is more than some artists are willing to endure or that they feel that they're above or below the contribution. We understand that. It's, it's just not for everyone. What 
I'll tell you, there's one thing that this is about. Ambition. So this is an artist that has an idea, and they're ambitious, and they've seen the facility, or they understand the scope or the size, and they really want to give it a shot at producing an installation in that particular space. And it could be something that they've never done before. There is no stipulation that the artist that is exhibiting exhibits what they are traditionally or what they normally would exhibit. It is it is whatever that inspires them and wherever their ambition leads them. So the reason it's also experimental gallery is this is a place where they can experiment and exhibit an idea that they may not have necessarily ever done or been known for. So that that is, I would say, the the quality that I'm looking for. It's it's and professionalism, of course, because it is intimidating. So the logistics, the understanding of or the willingness to work with us in a business in a professional manner, because there is equipment, there's an accountant, you know, there's marketing to be done, there's there's planning and dates and events and programming and members of the community and that. You know, I just had Broward County School District visually impaired students visit and do an entire field trip in an installation. And, uh, you know, people laugh and say, visually impaired, they can't see. One of the things that we have is I make no assumptions. That's one of the rules. We make no assumptions. And we invited them to ensure they did come. And the visually, uh, visually impaired students were able to enjoy visual art. How strange is that? So they had a whole field day trip out of that. So... Again, it's ambition and it's a willingness and a drive to produce something that you've been inspired to do and rally around and just enjoy the process of having this thing facilitated and to the point where it's achieved. So I, I lied. I want to ask, I want to insert another question there. You know, you, you mentioned... Why did you lie? <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know that I was going to ask this and your answer sort of triggered the thinking. So you, you answered the question with two things, ambition, and then you said professionalism. I, I would probably, if I was describing what you had said after the fact, I'd characterize it more as professionalizing the process. You know, professionalism gets put in that mode of it's sort of how we feel or our attitude or you know True. professionalizing what you're really talking about is the logistics side of it understanding that there's parts here the parts have to come together the marketing the logistics uh you know the the project management side of it so if we just take those two things ambition and the professionalizing the process of running an art project do you find that those things are ra- relatively scarce among independent artists, or is this a skill set that they're lacking um, in, that, that you really have to, to sift through to find it, or do you find it popping up everywhere? And let me just tell you the reason I'm asking. It's, you know, sometimes I talk with working artists, and I, I find that some, at least, are um, they have such a low vision of where they could be or should be versus the ambition that says whatever vision they have that we might have for them double it they're going to go beyond that they're going to break the chains of the rules and exceed it so i'm wondering what you see what's the market like full of ambition or or seriously lacking in it well i do four to five exhibits a year so that's four to five artists so i did not exactly say that's a sample size but large enough to make any generalizations about the scarcity of, of ambition or not. But what I could tell you is I think it does run the um, spectrum and there is a preparation for unpredictability. And 
the fact is most of their op school training does not include some of those aspects. And you're correct when you say, you know, it's not professionalism, but professionalizing. And there's a tightrope there. They went to art school, not business school. And it's not so much trying to make them an MBA overnight. And it's not about that. I, I think what it is, is the communication across sectors. So there's a business language, there's the language of art. And what I'm introducing, what, what, or what they will find in the experience is there, all, there is a lot of a business vernacular. And there's a lot of a business experience in the process, even though it is an artist-centric organization. And you can't get around that. You know, if there are vendors, equipment, and so on and so forth, all of this language is in the language of business. If you're looking at budgets, exactly. If you're looking at um, programming that is uh, potentially raising funds for the nonprofit. So all of this becomes very... That's actually all business-centric. So I wouldn't say... Ambition is scarce. I, 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 I can't even really speak to that. But I would say that it is definitely apparent that in the university and school system, the, in the art schools, do not necessarily focus on those skills in their training. And very, very well-established MFAs and long-time artists, you can see that that is apparent or the ability to, to collaborate with a sector outside of the arts. So collaborating with a business person to achieve this, that you can see. And it goes both ways. You know, business has a hard time understanding the arts, if you want to say that. So I'm not, I'm not really just advocating in one direction. I'm just ad I'm advocating for the professionalizing in the sense that within the organization, the artist is seen just as professional as the accountant just as professional as the director and these other typical roles that we consider professional roles and giving them an opportunity to play in that arena and exercise their thoughts, even though that the language might be different. But by exposing them to that, they, they learn. Well, you, and that's not something that they get in art school. I, uh, you're going to make a liar out of me because, you know, you just unpacked an entire suitcase of interesting things that we can't just immediately move on from. And, you know, of course, one of them is, I'm really excited about, you, you know, you're pointing out, <laughs> to quote to quote you immediately, you said their art school training didn't prepare them for this. And, of course, that's a travesty. I'm probably not going to let you get away without, without commenting on that a little further. But you also said, look, they went to art school, not business school you know, implied in that is we can forgive not having necessarily that skill set. But it, it's very much you're singing our song. You know, it, the fellowship that we have at the Clark Healings Fund, the Business Accelerator Fellowship, is designed to teach them the business training skill set that they didn't acquire in their art school training precisely so they can go forward and do these pivotal projects like what you're doing. And then it sounds like where we leave off is where you pick up that what Arts Up is doing is saying, all right, here's a venue, here are, here's the logistical support, here's the collaboration to go on and now execute on that training. And it's going to require you to be successful in this. What we're really looking for is that you have those skills and it's going to require you to professionalize your process utilizing those skills. Am I, you know, I didn't think of this when we had you on the show. It may sound like a setup, but... Uh, am I uh, dreaming when I say that, yeah, it sounds like uh, where we leave off is where you pick up, and this is almost like a, a perfect partnership? I wouldn't say that is incorrect. I wouldn't say it's incorrect at all. Yeah, 
I agree with you. And again, you know, you got various degrees. Like I said, it's always a solo show. I'm working with one artist on the project. So there is this terrific ability to cater to wherever they are. And it's about what do you want and what do they want from their career and their practice? And what can this, how can this help facilitate an advancement in that? And that's, that's really what it is. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And they ask questions. So in that environment, and you have to in the process, I have questions, they have questions. And generally the questions are exactly, I don't understand what you're talking about when you mention this particular thing about the marketing. And I will fill them in on what's the purpose of this and, and why we're doing it that way. And they will give me suggestions and we'll have these discussions. If nothing else, it's just, you know what? We're very similar. We've just been taught to speak two different languages. I might be, I have the ability to maybe understand the language in both disciplines. So that makes me sort of, uh, you know, I could cross the bridge back and forth and, and translate. And in that translation, we're creating nothing other than nonstop learning opportunities. So, yeah, I don't want to make a liar out of you. You're not lying. <laughs> well, I, I just I'm excited, of course. Uh, you know, anytime I find something that connects so thoroughly with what we're doing, you know, at CHF, I get really excited. So I'll let you go with just the finishing up this question about art school and then you know, asking one more question about this whole thing before we take a break for station identification and move on to another segment. Sure. So just to touch on I'll, this. Can I, can I just add, yeah. can I just add something? Absolutely. It's, I'll, I'll say, you know, and this professionalizing, it's a fine line, but I'll say the organization is artist centric. So the artist way is very respected. And I do understand that the organization by being an environment for experimenting and the true creative process, because you cannot separate the two. So you can't have a creative process, an experimental gallery that is not introducing uncertainty and unpredictability. They go together. So therefore, I'm introducing risk in that sense. And I'm doing that because I want to maintain the artist's way. And it really is about allowing them to find what that is and helping facilitate and mentor through that process so it becomes enriching. But it's I'm very careful to understand, like I said, I want them to be artists and practice as artists and have a venue and see opportunities for them to plug in as artists, even though they might be sharpening professional skills or, or learning the language of business, per se. It should be sort of organic and it should feel good to them and be full of what we call aha moments. So why why did they not why do artists not acquire these business skills that they're going to need for executing a pivotal project in art school? Why do art schools not train artists with this if it's going to be critical for their future? That's a question we should be asking art schools or the <laughs> students in the art schools or students in MFA programs should be asking the art schools. Maybe they don't want that, you know. You know, like we were all in university. There's, a, you know, there's only four years in four years. So, if you, you know, their training is very intensive and rigorous and critical. So, you know, there, there is no minimizing the skill set that they are learning in art school. 
the changing landscape and the advent of technology and especially the internet and all this distributive technology has found the individual artist in a place where a lot of the mechanisms and structures for art diffusion, they now have access to play that role themselves. So you do have a lot of intermediaries in the arts that administer all the business aspects for the artists traditionally. But it's just the, you know, things are changing. They're, you know, same with music, right? You don't need the record label too much anymore. And artists are finding that there are more options. So, but those other options that are created are putting them in an entrepreneurial space. So if that didn't traditionally, you know, it's a matter of time. Not all art schools don't address this. Some do. And it's, it, there's definitely a conversation. I think it's a matter of they're trying to figure out how's the best way to do this without just plunking them, you know, a bunch of business courses in the middle of art school, which I'm probably not in favor of. And that's why I designed the course that I did. We can help them in that process, but we don't have to take a business 101, business 102, and then just start making them do that. Some are, some some students elect to do a dual degree program. That's one way to do it, but it's not the only way. Well, I like your, your positivity about it. You know, the need, not only the need for evolution of art schools, but the possibility that many art schools are sort of catching on to the new distributive culture. I have this one more question, which is uh, about this before we go to station break, which is how are you growing and evolving as a curator in your efforts as at Arts Up? I'll say this much. I don't use the, I don't refer to myself as a curator. Do I assume some duties of a curator? Yes. You know, I also assume some duties of a janitor, but I don't call myself a janitor either. Um, so there are curatorial aspects that I am practicing. Uh, I'm not aspiring to be a curator. The organization is lean. It's a nonprofit startup, if you will. It's not even a year old in business terms. It's bootstrapped and all the resources are there to make sure that the platform and that environment is created and exists for the artist to plug into. And I, Absolutely do want to learn, and maybe I'm, I'm probably learning as I go. I do have members of the community that are actually curators, <laughs> trained and practicing, that I absolutely turn to and have discussions. They visit, they come see the exhibits, they talk to me. So, indeed, it is a learning process, and um, I would say the answer to that question is I'm putting myself through an experiential process of learning. Well, fantastic answer. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, a production of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund delivers podcast courses like this at the pleasure of our audience. And that means if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month would be a welcome and appropriate way to sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. Know also that a portion of our funding goes to deliver direct education to artists who demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Neil, you call yourself an artist advocate. What is that exactly, and why did you become one? An artist advocate? Well, I'm an artist advocate in the fact that my background is in economics and finance, and I was practicing and working as a corporate controller and 
never in an artist role or in an artist environment. And what I was doing, I was happened to be in a particular town where there were artists and um, and the museum and so on and so forth. And I was just using my voice in such arenas as an economic development committee. Um, I was also on a district committee. So I was using my voice in places where the artist traditionally isn't sitting in order to advocate for the artist. So when you're looking at a district that is thinking about maybe renaming or rezoning itself an arts district, or you're looking at facilities that are being considered for the creative industries, and or maybe some of that is you know, the, the utilization of artists, I would, for lack of a better word, I look out for the artists within those arenas where they may not be sitting. And I did this, and I started doing this back in 2005. The reason I did it is because I would be sitting in these meetings, economic development and community district meetings, and I would hear a lot of conversation about arts and the utilization of art within those areas, especially at that time, um, trying to do a lot of community development they were doing. However, what was missing was the artist's voice. There were very few artists, if any, at those tables. Predominantly, they were attorneys, real estate professionals, developers, uh, agents in things of insurance and, and construction, other, other businesses, but very rarely artists. And then when the artists were involved or the artist institutions or the artist studios did come up and there were relationships with the artists, I found that that, that relationship was very antagonistic. Um, there was a awful breakdowns in communication between the two disciplines. And I said, you know, I don't think the the business sector really understands the artist. And, you know, there seems to be some sort of divisive mechanism here. And I thought that it was all about, or, or, or much of it was around the language. So I decided that, you know what, um, I have a reverence for art and the artist themselves. So I became an artist advocate, not an arts advocate. So that is petitioning for the ideas of the individual that is artist-trained, but not necessarily just for the commodity or the product that they produce, but for their ideas and for their ideas to be infused and to be placed on tables that are not necessarily are more holistic than the conversation of art. But we should still have them there, because when that topic comes up, I, I would like them to be thought and spoken to and referred to just as the professionals we would do if it were numbers, we'd go to an accountant and finance, if it were legal, we'll go to an attorney. So I, I really just wanted to make sure that their voice was heard through me at those settings, but they're not there. And I just try to do that all the time. I think that's one of the responsibilities of having a voice in a particular area. You should speak for the people who don't have a voice in that area, but especially when they are stakeholders in what's being discussed or the decisions that are being made. Well, let me play Neil Devil's Advocate for a second uh, and just ask you this question. Can't artists advocate for themselves? Do they ne really need advocates? And do they need non-artist advocates? All of the above. They can advocate for themselves. And I think we all need advocates that are not in the particular position that we're in. So, you know, you don't have to be that thing or you don't have to be that minority or that sector. You don't have to be within that in order to advocate for it. As a fact, I think it's quite powerful to advocate for something that you're not a part of. You're removing the ad hominem from the argument. You're saying, uh, <laughs> you're saying, yeah, you know, the advocacy is the point, not who's doing the advocacy. I like that. I think that's, that's the perfect answer. <laughs>
So let's expand a little bit. Let's zoom out. Is the art market, as it currently stands, working for artists or holding them back overall? I'm not so sure I'm really qualified to speak too much to that. Like I said, there are many intermediaries in this business. You know, auction houses, galleries, art fairs. So I would say a professional that is really in that arena might be able to have a better idea of that landscape. I, I do really spend most of my year listening to the artists themselves. There's a, and there's a lot of opinions there. And I've heard everything probably along the spectrum. So I, I wouldn't say that I can conclude anything about the market other than I do understand markets. I play a lot in markets. From economics and finance, I mean, the finance is it's all about markets. And so the art market doesn't operate really much differently than any other economic market or financial model that's out there in that sense. So I do have a great understanding of the structure of it and how it works in terms of the greater wealth system and the economic systems that are existing. But as far as you know, the, the question about markets, are they serving the artists? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm looking, you know, there are aspects of the current environment that seem to be stacked up to inhibit or limit the artist's ability for self-determination. Some have argued previously on the show that that includes the gallery system, uh, that the gallery system holds artists back because all marketing is sort of controlled by the gallery. The relationship with the end user is controlled by the gallery. The gallery acts as a middleman, and the gallery takes a pretty sizable commission for that. And so there's nothing wrong with galleries or having galleries. It's not about being for or against galleries, but having galleries be your only outlet for creative expression and the only contact that you have with your market may really limit artists, and yet it's the predominant way. And then other artists have come on and and talked about how art shows can be really a limiting factor, and still others have talked about how art schools limit artists by not preparing them for the practical world of, of needing to market their art or sell their art. So I'm, I'm just curious about your overall take about whether the sure. chips are stacked for or against the artist as we, as we have things now. Now you're sort of stepping into the territory of the reason why I created the course at uh, ART5853. And it's titled, is this title Visual Arts Marketing, which is what the university has titled it. And the reason... That is about, to answer this question, there, I just said, there are many intermediaries. So the art fair, the gallery, all of these things are art. They're intermediaries. That is their job. That's what that business is constructed to do. And so that model that you just described, even though an artist might not like it, well, that's how it was constructed, and that's what the gallery is supposed to do. It's supposed to market. It's supposed to match the artists with collectors and, you know, get and galleries start to form their own brand and their own interest and they might have their own niche and, and things like that. And that's entrepreneurial. They select how they want to show up and position themselves and in the marketplace. To go back to the course, the course is exactly that. It's to just say, you know what, you have options. So when you're deciding your course or what you want to do, it's about providing them the options. It's the options that are valuable. It's not necessarily about that those are not the only way. So if they believe that the gallery is the only way or an art fair is the only way, then that artist needs further education, right? And that's what our purpose is, is to say, you know what, there are other ways. So 
on all of those things suit the individual. Some artists do perfectly well. They should plug into a gallery. If you find that sort of relationship with a gallerist and you can find that mechanism to do all that, sure, spend the time in the studio, produce your you know, ideas and your product and your, and your artwork, and you have a great relationship with a gallery to distribute that. That's normal business practices. If you're an artist and that does not work for you or you don't like that system, then you have to find an alternative. Yes, 50-50 is that's the general thing. You know, art, the art market, I could tell you, is one of the last unregulated markets. So, yeah, do hear commissions that are completely way off the charts compared to, you know, you sell a house, it's 3 6%, you know, between two people, 3%. In, a, in the financial industry, commissions are certain aspects. And the art, you hear commissions, and like it's, it's astronomical, yes, in that sense. However, it's not regulated. So they're just doing what the market can bear. And if the market can't bear it, I'm sure they will, it will decide to do something else. If gallerists were finding a problem attracting artists that they want because the artists no longer want to give 50% and things are still viable, it would change, right? So. Um, I think the point is that the artist has choices and it's up to the, them to figure out what are all the options available. And every year, a new option becomes available. And, you know, it's, we're just in a very entrepreneurial and capitalist society. There's always going to be something, you know, now they're selling art online, right? You never used to do that. Now you could sell art online and major galleries have art online, right? Uh, Fachi started all this stuff as well. So... The artist can really get, it can become quite complex with the options in the way, but they do have to have an idea of what it is that they want from their life and from their career. And then they, there is a strategy and there's a mapping out of that and it's selecting what they feel is best for them and the position of what they're doing. But I don't, I'm not really one to condemn any of those mechanisms or intermediaries. I mean, an art fair is just like any other professional fair. I mean, if you were selling garden furniture there are there's there's garden furniture fairs and that's what art basel and all these other fairs are i think we sort of romanticize them and think that these are you know mobile museums or something and we want them to be that way but really they're just hawking words well spoken like uh, a true economist uh i want to go ahead and take a station break and then come back and do the third and final segment of our show which is uh, coincidentally on economics and marketing If you've been finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. A portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. So share this commitment with us now at clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Neil, beyond being the founder and director of Arts Up, you created and teach a course on visual arts marketing at Florida International University. Why specifically did you create that course? I specifically created the course because I wanted to share what I understand about economics and finance and the markets and how it structurally operates with the artists themselves. And if I, I always believe that the more if you know about how things work, you can often mitigate your frustration about how things work. So the example that you just brought up about how some artists feel about galleries and art fairs, explaining the structure and what their business is, right? So they're all businesses. So if you're coming from an education that doesn't teach you anything about business, you're going to have a real hard time understanding the business practices of these 
supporting or helping organizations and their goals and their necessities and what they have to do for their shareholders, even if it's a single owner that's still a shareholder, and what they've got to do for the community or stakeholders. And some of those are business practices, and they can become frustrating because they do have constraints and so on and so forth. So that's what fueled me, is to just to create a program where I am able to deliver an understanding of the structural business environment or the landscape and deliver that to the artists just like they would in researching a particular topic that they choose to express or create art to make an, 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 an expression. And they would do a lot of research. So I'm just giving them research that I've done and knowledge that I've done, sharing it with them so that they can also have an understanding of the landscape within which they are playing. And that landscape is becoming more and more interdisciplinary. And we're seeing that you know, art and technology, art and science, and artist collaborations across sectors, and that's a big part of it. It's being able to artists to be able to communicate their ideas and what it is they do and their value across those sectors. So how does an artist integrate with technologists? How does an artist integrate with scientists? How does an artist integrate with an MBA? How does an artist integrate with legal? None, none of us are not exposed to legal and finance. None. And especially if you have a practice of any sort, our practice included, you're going to be, you're going to eventually come across that. So that's the impetus is to, it's to really say, okay, let's take our head out the sand and we're going to come out the studio for a minute and I'm going to be very sensitive to your, the artist's way and what it is that you do and what you, but also let's not ignore that there's this massive massive ecosystem out there that you are part of. And much of that is actually the language of business. And then it's vice versa. Because once, you know, there's an accepting, you know, that yeah, we do understand that. And then it's also when the artist shows up and they have that, you know, the business community can stand to learn a little about arts and creativity ourselves. So it's it's really about melting a little bit of that together. But again, without giving dry business 101, accounting 101, here's marketing 101 courses and just throwing them into an art school. Uh, so I came up with a way to do that, which again is experiential and it creates an environment for them to practice. But the tools and that environment, it's uh, based on communication in a digital platform and a very broad audience because, you know, we have all these social media technologies and those are included. And um, to approach it from a critical point of view and really start to be able to market their own ideas and themselves more so than the artwork or the product or, or, or you know, lack of a better word, and we know it's being used this way as the commodity. And let's focus less on the marketing of the commodity and let's start to focus more on the value of your ideas and your intellect and the training that you have aggregated from art school. And how can you use that to further embed yourself into the economic system and the social structures and infrastructures that we have without having to show up as somebody else or a different discipline because nobody values art or artists in other ways than painting their house or throwing a mural on a wall or decorating a space. You know, they're not. You know, they're highly intellectual and problem solvers. So it puts them in the arena or, or environments to problem solve. And hopefully then they can transpose those skills and increase their value to other people and communicate that 
um, to people who are non-artists and who have institutes or problems that are not art-related, but they can be solved by an artist. Well, so this course is on visual arts marketing. I'm curious if one of the things that you hope artists will take away from the course is the ability to plan their marketing strategy while they're studying their craft, or at least to somehow lay the groundwork for future events and projects. Yes, the entire course is a series of deliverables, and the, the entire the way it's structured, it's structured as though they are independent contractors, and they've received, uh, they have deliverables every week, and those deliverables are all milestones, and therefore they have to really, it just forces them to think about, there's two things. It, it just goes back to why are you doing it and what are you going to do? So everything is looked at as why and what's the purpose and what are you going to do and how are you going to achieve that? And that in itself. So by doing those, asking those questions continuously, they have to start to map. All right. What am I going to say? What is, what is this body of work going to, this digital body of work going to achieve? Yeah. They're going to come up with a strategy and it, it does help in that sense, but it is completely applied and it is completely through the experience of going through this delivery and one of which is maintaining a gallery online, their own gallery, and then figuring out exactly are they, are they going to be the artist? Are they going to be the curator? Is it a, is it a, they, whatever they choose, it could be telling stories through, through visuals. Um, they've done that. But whatever it is, they know why they're doing it, and they're selecting a method to distribute and to communicate what it is that they want to express. And that has to be done in a format that adheres to the principles of marketing, you know, the four Ps, product, place, price, move, and so on. So, you know, your background is in economics. How did you become interested in the arts in the first place? And, and what can economics really tell us about arts and artists my background yes is in economics and um art i became interested in art uh, i'm born and raised in london so part of my environment were some great art museums you know tate national gallery the history museum and just museum after museum and I had a, a very, very early desire to study architecture, which is what, and, and design, which is what I started to do in my early, early teens while in the equivalent secondary school or the equivalent of high school. And that's how I actually came to the United States of America. And I was studying architecture in, in a New York magnet school and then went to architectural school at the University of Florida. So I've always had a love for the arts, and I've always been drawing and illustrating and things of that nature. So that art and architecture was my first passion. Um, so I'm just uh, kind of going back to what I love. So are there particular fundamental economic truths that artists really probably should understand or need to understand uh, in order to be successful in their careers? I always say that economics, people know more about economics than they think they know. Supply and demand. So, artists see evidence of this a lot, I suppose. You know, when something is being scarce, especially in the auction markets or secondary markets, and how the prices fluctuate and go based on supply, demand, and so on and so forth. And then there, there are other aspects in there that can become too technical, because nowadays we do get market makers and we are able to sort of elevate artists 
into arenas in the marketplace, and there are mechanisms and strategies to do that, but I don't want to get into that because, again, the market is unregulated. And so there's just many... I guess the biggest takeaway anyone should, as far as economics is concerned, the art market is all, is what we call a dark economy, right? So you got, you know, you got the, the black economy. The art market can be a dark economy. It's near, when they say black market. So it's not a black market, but it can be considered a dark market. It's not very transparent in, in some of its mechanisms, but economics has a lot to do and, and is one of those nosy, disciplines. It, it, it allows us to stick our nose into many, many things. Um, just because it's social science. So uh, the, the, There's a lot of economics at play, but I don't really expect the artists to... I don't want to bore your listeners with, <laughs> with the economic aspects of it. I think that's a completely different rabbit hole we can go down. But there is a lot of economics at play. Fair enough. So I, I just want to ask you about a, a couple of terms that you've used in your LinkedIn bio and, and to find out what they mean. And then we'll wind down the show with just a couple of fun questions. Uh, so you've used two terms. One is art thinking. Uh, and I'm curious what art thinking is. And the other is creative economics. And I'm curious what that is. Creative economics. There's so many uh, titles or so many uh, ways to describe economics or definitions. There's not one. But the one I like to use, which is very simple, is the allocation of scarce resources, right? Um, but economics is about the production, consumption, or allocation of resources. Creative economics is applying imagination and original ideas on top of those already long-established economic laws. So having an understanding of economics and the behavioral aspects in that, I like to now apply my paintbrush on top of those principles. So I apply imagination and original ideas to see if we could, um, if, if nothing else, to, to create different outcomes. And one of the outcomes that I'm always shoot for is, uh, is win-win. So I, I practice win-win economics, right? So that is a, a specific application of creativity with this classical discipline. And I just lay them over the top. And that's, that's how I choose. I blur the lines. I try to redefine things and um i it, it's it's very much an artistic process i suppose just like an artist would and that's how i approach economics well i really like the uh, the sort of cross-disciplinary emphasis of it and i think that anytime we get into sort of interstitial um, subject matter or interdisciplinary subject matter uh, or cross-disciplinary subject matter it can be challenging to nail down exactly what we're doing because we're so used to thinking in very rigid and defined categories. So I admire the attempt to uh, transcend that. And there's another part of the question. I'm sorry, Daniel. And there was another part of your question that I didn't address, which was art thinking. Art thinking, right. Art thinking. And that's something I've said for many, many years. Now it's very formal, actually. Um, Amy Whitaker um has a book now called Art Thinking and uh she was also published in the Financial Times. So there's it's that that term has become very concrete. I've been using it four years now or more, if not more than that. Um so in my sense and what her sense is, I'm sure there's crossover, but I do want to make sure that if one was to look up art thinking, they would definitely see Amy Whitaker. And Amy Whitaker has an MFA, I believe, from Yale and an MBA from NYU. 
not sure about that. She teaches or taught at NYU. So she has a master's in both. So art thinking, in my terms, is, okay, thinking the artist's way, which has got a lot to do with tinkering. Things have become so trendy, you know, like fail fast and iterating and processes and things of that nature. And all these trendy items that we're hearing in business and design school and, 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 and these programs and in the entrepreneurial world, I found that, you know, artists have been doing this in their art studios forever. That's exactly so what I suppose is what we're considering, you know, this new century, this 21st century business practices and all of these efficiencies and, and agility and lean and um, fail fast and iterative processes. And artists have been doing this forever. So they are the, they're, they're, they're really masterful at that. So I'd say that that, what we're really trying to do in the business environment in order for us to uh, encourage creativity in these highly structured and, and, and traditionally very linear thoughts and, and ways of solving problems is to have these more artistic, more creative ways to approach problems. And artists, are, that's what they're trained. I mean, all day long, they're, you know, they're, they're influenced, but they can't, you know, they don't really just want to go copy something. So they'll, they, they take it and they reappropriate, repurpose, whatever. And, um, another buzzword and, you know, overused and I hear it too much, but, you know, we talk about the advent and this need and even in politics, innovation is what's going to drive us back into, uh, you know, the, the, the global economy and, and get the country on fire again. And those innovation processes look very much in parallel to the artistic process. So that's why I use art thinking. And I advocate for artists because I don't think artists need to be left out. I mean, they don't need to be left out of some of these intellectual conversations. And the business world does not have to uh, monopolize in in that sense. It it, It can go to the artists, even though they don't understand it, or it might be bohemian, which is very not corporate, it needs to go and, and hear the thoughts of, of these creatives. And understand also creators don't just have to be artists. But, you know, many people can be creative, but the artist is uh, highly, they're trained in this and have been. So the very skills that art schools are not training, and we're talking about those in terms of artists being able to advance their careers, and they're missing this particular training or skill set, um, it goes the other way around business is missing their skill set. So I'm advocating that both disciplines become a little less antagonistic and that we have more goal-to-solution projects where these sectors are crossed or sectors are blurred or sectors collide with each other and that the way we address problems become more holistic. And um, for those who like to think left brain, right brain, Let's have whole-brained approaches to problems, and it's even to do that, you must implement the left and the right, and therefore I say you must implement the arts with the business, and we must approach our social and commercial problems with the view from many different disciplines in order for us to exhaust our possibilities with the resource of intellect that we have in, in our communities. 
So I'm going to wind us down with just a, a couple of fun questions. Neil, what do you hope to accomplish through Arts Up in the next 10 years? I hope to accomplish whatever it is that the artists and the cross-sector practitioners can possibly envision. I hope to deliver on artist visions. So I love that. It's part of your, your collaborative, the collaborative vision of Arts Up that, uh, you know, true to your word, it's horizontal rather than vertical. <laughs> in, in that sense, it's not an incredibly defined mission because it waits for the artist to step in and help co-define it. Yeah, I would want it to remain an experimental platform. I would want it to remain risk tolerant. I would like it to remain a, a member of the community and have stakeholders see it as a organization with value to arts, artists and non-artists. And I would like to have dialogue, and I would like artists to have conversation there, and not so much complain about things, but if there is something that to be complained about, then why don't we generate the solutions, or potential or possible solutions, that could be delivered to the right place. And ArtsUp is a terrific organization and to do that, and because it's just full of opportunity. They're, they, you know, the, the art goes up in the ceiling. That's that's physical structure. But there is programming, there is social engagement, social practice, all of that can exist inside of that. All of it. So if you could go back in time and you knew then what you know now and could do one thing differently, what might it be? In terms of what? I'm, I'm not that young, so how much time <laughs> do we have? <laughs> well, you get to pick. I'm sure that founding Arts Up and, and designing uh, something in, a, in accordance with your vision, however collaborative, uh, was a process. And you learned things yes. through the process. And I'm sure there were some mistakes. So this is really just shorthand to asking you, is there something you would have done differently if you could do it over? I'm going to have to say... There are many things I might have done differently, but it's an experiential learning process for me. So the mistakes are part of the process and is part of deriving or coming up with what one would do differently. So yes and no. I brought, you know, part of art stuff is not doing it, not worrying about what would you do differently. It's kind of how do you get there? Yeah, there are a lot of things I wish were different on a systemic level. Um, yeah, um, but what's up in itself and what I'm doing is about affecting change and, and just creating an agency to hopefully improve things and not just from my lens. And it's not, as a matter of fact, I'm trying to remain kind of selfless in the process and listen to the thoughts and ideas of a community that I revere. And, and really making it artist-centric. We've quoted on this show before Thomas Edison when he had 200 failed experiments before he finally got the light bulb to work and someone said, you know, how does it feel to fail 200 times on the way to the light bulb? And he says, I didn't fail 200 times. There were 200 steps in the process. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think experiential learning does look forward. 
You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Arts Up and Neil Ramsey, visit artsupconcepts.com. That's artsupconcepts.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Neil. It's been really great having you. Thank you. It's really been wonderful to be here today. I really enjoyed it.